The recently postponed 2020 Olympic Games have a new starting date. The head of the International Olympic Committee says... This gives all of us hope for our further journey together. We planned it out that I would be 17 in the 2002 Olympics, and that would be a time that I could make it. And so we kind of worked backwards from there. Her dream has come true. I just clear my mind and the only thing that I focus on in this part is just the sound of the gun. And then after reaction, everything just fall into place. And Veronica Campbell-Brown has done it again. When I was done with the Olympics, I felt like I was at this cliff and needed to know what was next. Any feelings of anxiety that I was having, which were tremendous, I pushed away. At the end of the day, we're not just entertainment, we're human. So why is it got to be so damn tough? I am going to truly become obsessed about this sport and I'm going to commit myself to a level that I have never known in prior years. Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinfort. And in this episode, we have a special edition of the show, hot off the heels of some of the almost superhuman feats that we witnessed at the recent Olympic Games in Tokyo. Now that the games have come to a close, we thought it would be a great time to dive back into some of the best of the best from the Olympians that we've had as guests on the show and dig into it under the theme of the Olympic motto, faster, higher, stronger. Over the course of the episode, you'll hear from four different voices and you'll be able to identify them in different ways. They're all Olympians, all from different disciplines. Arguably the easiest one to identify will be Apollo Ono, the only guy in the group. He's America's most decorated winter Olympian of all time. He has to his name eight Olympic medals, two gold, two silver, and four bronze. And he's been inducted into the US Olympic Hall of Fame only just a few years ago. You'll also hear from his fellow Winter Olympian, Lindsey Vaughn, who is another gold medalist in downhill skiing from the 2010 Winter Olympics, one of only two females to have won four World Cup titles and has podiumed over 80 times in the World Cup individual events, basically one of the best to ever do it. And talking to us from the summer side of the Olympic Games, You'll hear from Veronica Campbell-Brown, who is an eight-time Olympic medalist as a sprinter for Jamaica. So her accent will be the thing that stands out to you from her segments. She's only the second woman in history to win two consecutive Olympic 200-meter events. She has three Olympic gold medals to her name. And then finally, another summer Olympian, Alexi Pappas. Her journey from being an amateur college athlete to representing her country and setting a national record at the Olympic Games in Rio is one you have to hear to believe, or perhaps even see, because she's actually made a couple of films about it. She'll be the youngest voice that you hear on this show. We're going to start off the show with the theme of hire, how Olympians set their goals and their standards to achieve things they never even thought possible. We're going to kick it off with Apollo Ono, talking about how he failed at his first Olympic trials, mostly because he was there to keep his father happy. And after disappointing his father, the story behind his journey into the wilderness and discovering his own goals, his own intrinsic motivation at a cabin in the middle of nowhere. I arrived into the Olympic, the Olympic trials um, in 97, and I had already in my head told myself I was not going to make the team. I had basically 
created a self-defeatist mentality of saying, I'm not going to make the team. I'm not good enough to make the team. Right. I don't want to make the team. And so I go through that Olympic trials and, you know, a year prior, I was number one in the US. In this competition, I finished dead last. Absolutely dead last. Which that's is a bad year. A very, that's a, like a knife in there. I probably could have gotten like 10th, maybe like 11th. But I wanted to go like, I, I think subconsciously, I wanted to really, really fail, really hit rock bottom. Um, and so, you know, I felt extremely defeated. I heard the chatter in and around the ice rink from the other parents who had seen me a year prior from the coaches. And it was very negative. It was like, oh, that kid, you know, it's, you know that kid's got no focus. He's, it, it was emotionally painful, right? To, to, to know what I thought what I was going to do was, ah, just I won't try that hard and, and maybe I can still make the team. But if I don't, then I, at least I can have that excuse to lean on. But it was the complete opposite. Instead, it was, holy shit, I've got this deep, resounding feeling of like almost embarrassment, like really feeling embarrassed that I didn't put it all out there. Like I just, right. didn't, I didn't even give a fraction of what I could have given. So my father saw this and he saw this pattern that he didn't want to become a habit. And so he was, he was obviously really upset that I didn't make the team, but more so he was really upset about the, the mentality that was brewing there that he didn't like. Now my father came to the US with no money, Japanese immigrant, didn't speak a single word of English, uh, and began his life really the hard way. Blood, sweat, and tears, trying every single job you could possibly manage, imagine, just trying to survive. Forget about thriving. Like he was just trying to survive and not have 15 roommates, right? Like situation. And then he saw me, a kid who's born in the US, who's got this amazing opportunity and gift and essentially and effectively was throwing that away. Right. And he was pissed. He was really pissed. Did that and lead to your, like you said, the knife in the side and your, the emotion that you were feeling of embarrassment was, did that lead to a, a feeling of like guilt towards your dad or anger towards yourself? Like, was there extra layers on top of just feeling a bit embarrassed? Absolutely. I mean, there, there's multiple layers of disappointment in myself uh, disappointment from my father, right? Growing mm -hmm. up in a single parent household, as you can imagine, you, you, pr I probably only ever wanted the approval from my dad. And I was not getting that in any capacity that entire year because of the attitude that I was putting forth. And it was it, emotionally, I was also very confused and very unsure of what I was doing, why I was doing it. I had never tasted defeat, I guess, in that realm mm -hmm. yet because I had been pretty, I had been pretty naturally talented. So, uh, you know, what you do in the face of defeat, I always say is, is very defining. Um, right. And this is a real defining moment in talking about that storybook and this yeah. little twist in the tail. Like when I read this part of your story, it really conjures to mind to me a, a picture, like a, a scene in star Wars where Luke Skywalker goes off by himself to be on a planet by himself with Yoda, maybe, or just by like real introspection and vulnerability and like you said some deep work on what am i really doing here can you share that i think your dad actually led you there straight after this you've fallen flat on your face for the first time and had failure and embarrassment and all of these emotions as a young teenager still it's a lot to digest but you went out and, and you did something fairly exceptional that really was a turning point for you yeah so it, and this was a hundred percent credit to my father 
where, you know, he had seen that pattern. And he, my father at the time, you know, he tells me that he, now he tells me that he didn't feel like he had any other options. And I'll explain what that means. We fly back to Seattle after the trials. My dad tells me on the way home that uh, he was going to take me to the cabin that we used to spend a lot of our uh, holidays on. And, mm. and this is a cabin that is, it's not our cabin. We just rent the cabin. Uh, at the time, it was called the Iron Springs Resort. And it, it's now been taken over by a family and it's renovated and it's beautiful. At the time, it was old. Not beautiful. It was not beautiful. I mean, there's, it, it's a beautiful scent. I mean, it's what you would imagine a cabin in the woods to look like. Uh-huh. Like if you just like went out hiking one day and you saw an old cabin that was, you know, functional, but there's just not much there. That's what like one of these was at. Yeah. And so when I say the word resort, and I say this in all due respect, it was nothing close to being a resort. There's no resort amenities in any sense. It was a last resort for your dad. Yeah, it was a last resort. And exactly. And I remember being there in the wintertime. It rains almost all day, every day. Gets dark at like 4.35 p.m. And it was just a time where my dad said to me, you're going to stay here at this cabin. I have food and I have clothes. I had been there so many times. I knew my way around, you know, this area. It's right on the Pacific Ocean, the Pacific Ocean's three and a half hours southwest of downtown Seattle. And he tells me, you're going to stay here for as long as it possibly takes for you to recognize and understand which path and which direction you're going to go in life and how you are going to go in that direction, more importantly. And what he was really saying to me was, you just threw an opportunity away because of your lack of effort and commitment and dedication towards something. I don't care that you didn't make the team. It's the way that you didn't make the team. That's what I care about. And I don't want you to go throughout your life in other areas, whether it's academics, whether it's in business, whether it's in school, with this type of defeatist attitude. And also this type of an attitude of where my dad didn't want me to be okay losing, right? Like he, he wanted mm. it to affect me. He wanted it to fire me up. He wanted right. it to change psychologically that switch that goes on that you are now a man on fire. He, was, he, he didn't see that in me. And for someone who struggled in this country for so many years, uh, that was important to have, right? This, this, mm-hmm. this survival mechanism. And so my father literally drops me off at this place. I'm 15 years old at the time. There's leaves, no one around. Leaves you alone. Just- oh, he leaves me. He drives back to Seattle. Three and a half hours, drives back to Seattle. I've got no cell phone. I've got no video games. There's no internet. There's none of that stuff exists. It's just literally me and nature, which like I fully love that now. Like I look forward to those moments now, but <laughs> back then, no, like you I have no friends. I don't know what the hell I'm doing, why I'm there. I also am very uncomfortable talking to myself, right? Because you're, when you're placed in that type of environment, you're now, you're now trying to figure out and understand like, why did my dad put me here? Does he hate me? Why did I not win? Why did I not, you know, like, like and it's, by the way, it, the depth of this texture and layers, these conversations are, they're not as deep as I'm able to articulate now, but back then emotionally, it was more just like, what the hell do you want to do? Like, you know, why did you do this? And that began this like seven day mindlessly just kind of going through the motions of training, going for long runs. I had like a small stationary bike that I had set up in the living room. Um, 
which was the bedroom. Um, and I just, I, I, I didn't talk to a single person for like nine days. Next up, we have Lindsay Vaughn talking about how daily small goals help motivate her to get better both on the track and outside of it. I loved um, the daily challenge. You know, I, I gave myself little small individual goals that I could accomplish every day. Um, and maybe maybe it was more than one goal sometimes. It was three goals. Maybe I only accomplished two but or one. But I felt like achieving something daily gave me like a positive affirmation that I was doing a good job. And that's what actually kept driving me and got me really into fitness is because you see the change that you create. You know, the more time you spend in the gym, the, the more results that you physically and physically can see. And that's something that is very, very rewarding. Like I like those positive affirmations. And that's actually one thing outside of the competition that's really been a struggle for me in, in, in retirement is that. I struggle without those daily affirmations. Like I, I like, you know, accomplishing something. I like working hard and having a challenge and struggling to overcome it. You know, I like those things and um, I've had to find different ways of, of getting that. Um, that's not from my coach or. <laughs> right. Here we have Veronica Campbell Brown, who was born in a humble family in Jamaica's countryside, talking about how she realized at a very young age that her love for running was maybe the only opportunity for her to rise out and become something greater than where she had been born. A lot of the athletes in Jamaica end up in sprints. For me, I was born in Trelawney, Jamaica. It is a rural area, so I consider myself a country girl. And I grew up in a family that was a huge family, but growing up, I did not have much. I, I grew up with my mother, my stepfather, and um, several brothers and sisters I have five brothers, four sisters. And so I grew up in a large family and we did not have much, but my mother thought me the value of hard work and just being positive and staying focused. And so when I discovered my gift for running at a very young age, I realized that that was the opportunity for me to rise from my humble beginning and become something great out of life. And so I've always just have that in the back of my head. And so I've always worked hard at track and field to the point where everything I do always include running. So although I have a lot of brothers and sisters just to share the tasks with, the tasks with my mother always made me the child of choice to be sent to the supermarket because in Jamaica, we don't <laughs> normally stop grocery. We buy like daily. And so how far, how far are we talking to the supermarket? How far is that? I want to say about five miles. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. And I would run. I was always front. I would run on these dirt roads, beer feet, whether it is dry or wet. It was always fun. And I would run to get whatever my mom wanted to cook. And she normally start cooking and just send me to buy whatever she needs because she know that I would get back in time. And so I would also... I love running so much that I was beating all the girls and I realized that wasn't enough. So I started to initiate race races with the boys, even older boys. And they would be quick to accept the challenge because they're like, okay, I'm going to beat her. She's just a girl and she's a younger girl. But to their surprise, I, I win most of those races. And so, <laughs> and so it become a community entertainment where people would come out <laughs> of the street just to watch me racing these boys on, on the street. 
barefoot. And it was funny because the street that we chose to race on was going downhill. So you're adding that extra speed and you have to maintain your technique and know how to run down the hill when everything is fast. And so so track and field is a blessing for me. And I really embrace my talent. And I realize that it doesn't matter where you come from. It's about your hard work, your determination. And I really appreciate being from an humble beginning and born in Jamaica where we don't have like American football. We don't have great basketball teams and the main sport is track and field. And so I had no choice. If I wanted to get out of Jamaica, if I wanted to be appealing to the U.S. to the U.S. schools to get a scholarship, I had to work extremely hard because it was very competitive. And everywhere you look, you could find a great sprint athlete. And so... I had to stay focused, stay on the course and know that I'm working hard because I wanted to get out of poverty. I wanted to make a life for myself so I can give back to my family. And mm-hmm. so it was just an absolute blessing. I can't stress it too much to discover that I had that talent and I had people around me who supported and pushed me to the right schools and helped me to just continue evolving and training hard. And I am where am I today just because of um, track and field. And I think that because I did not have much, my determination was always on a high, no matter how challenging it was, whether, I'm, whether I didn't have shoes, whether I didn't have food, I'm going to train in because I see it as an opportunity to get better. And I know that my situation would be temporary. And as long as I keep pushing through and keep working hard, then I know that I would be rewarded. And finally, under the theme of hire, we have Alexi Pappas, who at six years old went to the 1996 Olympics with her father, but little did she know that a spark of a dream of becoming an Olympian would become a reality 20 years later in Rio. Sports were always... I think a way for my dad and I to communicate with each other. And after my mom passed away, I lost her to suicide when, or by suicide, I think is the right way to say it. When I was four, my dad, I think found that sports were the best way to teach me how to like fall down and get back up. And I also loved sports. And so I was brought by him to the Olympics in 1996. I was six years old. And I think at that moment, I really was like, this would be so incredible and cool. But of course, the Barbie that I brought home was the gymnastics Barbie. And I didn't end up being a gymnast. (laughs) But I loved sports. And I think what I loved about them was the sense of putting in work and getting something back and having some sort of control. And I loved teams. But I would say that the Olympic dream didn't seem possible to me until after college, mostly because I simply wasn't good enough, I think, to like entertain such a dream as a real thing. It was more like a reverence to the Olympics and admiration, a love for it. And it wasn't until after college that I loved running enough and that I was, you know, in a position to to dream about making it to the Olympics. And, And prior to that, again, I found running a little bit later than some people. And I also had this curiosity for the arts and for acting, which is a kind of performance just like running. And so I think I am a performer. That is what I enjoy most. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. 
And I think with the training, you could equal that playing field to some degree where some people are willing to go towards the fire and stand in the fire. So damn proud. The next theme we're gonna borrow from the Olympic motto is faster. How, once people have set goals, even big, hairy, audacious ones like being an Olympic champion, how they go about fast-tracking their progress, staying on track, and developing quicker than their competition. First up, we're going to have Veronica Campbell-Brown talk about how, after she didn't make it into her high school sprint team, she realized that her talent and her dreams wouldn't be enough on their own, so she decided to commit 100% to her training. You mentioned there the, the steady vision on your goal. No matter how difficult things are, no matter whether you fall over, the resilience to keep coming back. Can you describe when was the first time you recognized that in yourself? Where like it sounds like you were just like, hey, this is a girl who can beat all the guys on the block. And so let's take her to nationals in, in Jamaica. And then she can beat all the girls in Jamaica. So let's take her to the Olympics. Like it sounds like a pretty smooth run, right? But I'm assuming that there were some hiccups and pitfalls along the way. It, when did you first recognize that? So what actually, did you have to draw on that? Right. My first year in high school, Vietnam High School. Vertical High School is one of the most accomplished high school in Jamaica. Um, it has produced most Olympians in Jamaica's track and field history. And I was advised to attend Vertical High School because of the history and the quality training that I would get to continue to improve my speed and technique. And so I got to Vertical High School dominating in my parish in Trelawney. And when I, when, I, when I got there, I was not fit enough for the sprint team. So that was the first wake up call, like, okay, you were beating all the boys in Trilani, but now this is a new level. And I was forced to run the 400 meters. I did not know anything about the 400 <laughs> meters, never trained for it before. I never run it before, but here I was, I had no choice. I love track and field. I want to stay on the team. And so I had to train for the 400 meters for one season. And I'm telling you, those training sessions were extreme. I had to finish all my workouts. There are days when I have to go on a 30 minutes run, and then I come back for the track workouts. And all these were, were new to me, but I had to develop resilience and toughness and just stay working, staying hard because I wanted to get back to the sprints. And I really believe that I was a sprinter, but for one season, I was a 400 meter runner. And although I ran at the high school championship, I did not do well, but I stayed in it and I keep working hard. And I eventually, I regained my position in the sprint one season later. And that very, very season, I won my, my first global title, 100 meter at the World Youth Championships. And so if I'd given up, because if I wanted, I could have quit. I could have just stopped doing track and field because I wasn't doing what I want. But I stayed with it. I stayed focused on my goal. And I know that I would regain a position in the sprints. And when I got back to the sprints, I felt like a stronger, better person because the training wasn't as hard. The, tra the sprint training was actually easy based on what I was doing for the 400 meter um, training. So I think that was the first time I realized that no matter what challenges you get to face, as long as you stick with it, you will be a better person through it. So that little lesson taught me to not be afraid of challenges. And so when I 
start running in the Olympics. And it was like uh, after I finished competing for Vietnam High School and competing at those championships in Jamaica, the Olympic stage, although it was a bigger global stage, it feels like I've been there before because it's it's always a fight to make sure that I that I make the team, to make sure that I win and get the points that are required of me. And so I think my high school really, Vietnam Technical High School, they really taught me what it means to just stay determined, keep persevering. And no matter what, what I have to do, I can get it done. Next up, we've got Alexi talking about after achieving something that most of us mortals could only dream of, going to the Olympics and breaking a national record, being completely lost and burnt out. And her battle, her process of getting better is actually not so much related to her Olympic journey, but to one of struggling with depression and anxiety and working her way through it with the help of someone close to her. So you made it to Rio. You set a national record. So you're, you're a Greek-American. Is that the right way to say Greek that? Greek-American. Yep, exactly. You're perfect. Right. And so you, you represented Greece at the Olympic Games. Is that true? Yes. Cool. Which, because of the nature of the Olympic Games, I imagine that's even more because it's like it started in Greece, right? Like the Olympic Games were originally the Greek Games. So a cool little circle back moment there. And as you represent them, you set a national record in the 10,000 metres. So this is like, speaking of dreams, 117 times in your book, every third page, you have like peaked. You're 26, you're representing your country, you've set a national record, you've achieved the dream of dream of dreams. And then things start to turn a little bit, right? And this is where your story, not that it's not interesting up to that point, that's incredibly interesting already, but that's almost scene one or act one of the hero's journey and all of a sudden things start to go into darker places for you without playing too much on the words. Going from a dream to a nightmare in some ways is what happened for you next. Can you share what that experience was like? Yes. So taking a step back from the Olympics, I think that my understanding of mental health, my understanding of what had happened to my mom was really limited and challenging because when she died by suicide, I thought, you know, the narrative that I was told was that she was just so sick that she had to go and she was unhelpable. And what that meant to me as a child was that, well, I better not ever be anything like her because I don't want to be unhelpable and I don't want to have to go. And so I spent so much of my life chasing these outward facing accomplishments to simply tick the boxes for myself that I was successful and happy and okay, because I didn't want to die. And I didn't understand how someone could go from being okay to not being, to being not okay. And to being not okay in a way that was unsolvable, which is just my understanding of her situation based on the narrative that I've heard and the narrative that I crafted. And so when I got to the Olympics, which is a peak that nobody prepares, I think, for the moment after, because if you did, you might not get there in the first place. Mm. I panicked a little bit because I wanted to know, well, first of all, I think I thought that I would feel this thing that you expect to feel at a peak where you feel complete. And you do, you feel incredible. It's a dream come true, but you can never solve an internal problem with an external solution. So there always will be, if you're chasing, you know, running away from a trauma or whatever it was that I was doing, there's always going to be that feeling of like incompletion because it's not a really viable solution. 
And when I was done with the Olympics, I felt like I was at this cliff and needed to know what was next. And I needed to know yesterday and I didn't know. And there was a series of changes that I made in my life in the course of a month from moving to changing coaches, to changing events up to the marathon, to I experienced, I was going through sponsor negotiations. There was a lot of stress and it felt like a little cliff, like a big cliff really. And I didn't navigate it very well because any feelings of anxiety that I was having, which were tremendous, I pushed away because I associated those as indications that I was behaving like my mother or being like her, which I didn't want to be. And so I kind of rejected any kind of post-Olympic depression as a possibility for me and therefore made it even worse. And it wasn't until my dad months into this episode saw through the phone really that I was not okay and made me get help that I got help and understood that I was sick or I was mentally injured and that my doctor was like, it's just like a physical injury where you can fall down and scrape your knee and and your brain can have a scrape on it too. And it can heal, but it's going to take a long time. And that was really the epiphanal moment in my life where I realized that it was an injury and that I could be okay again. But I didn't grow up understanding that these injuries were injuries. And I didn't understand that if they ever happened, that I would be okay. Here we have Lindsay Vaughn talking about skiing from a very early age and having to find new ways to stay motivated along the journey. And she talks about how after meeting her hero, she reached out to her father and together developed an eight-year plan, step-by-step process that would take her to her first Olympic competition. I mean, you mentioned their talent because... It does take time for that to evolve and to show out. But Lindsay, you were skiing from the age of uh, like yeah. early. Yeah. And and so the, like there might have been some talent there, but that's a long time to be learning something. Do you feel like you were innately talented or it was like I just happened to do it a lot and for a long time? I think it was a combination of, of all three of those things. Um, you know, I, I think I definitely had an inherent talent to it, but it didn't come right away. It, it took – um, until I was probably nine or 10 to where I really started to show that I was getting quite like, I, I kind of hit this point where I started to really learn very quickly. And I started, um, skiing a lot faster and I started moving up in the age ranks. Um, but it took me kind of a while to get going. And then once I got it, I really took off, but you know, I, there are different, definitely different, different steps along the way where I had to you know, re-motivate myself, you know, uh, I wasn't really the person that wanted to work out very hard when I was growing up. Um, So I had to learn how to do that because I reached a point in skiing where I wasn't getting any better. And, you know, my dad had a lot of great analogies like should or get off the pot. And so (laughs) I had to like figure it out. Okay. So here's what I want to know, Patty, if you agree with me, then we can ask Lindsay like together, but like, the um the shift maybe that happened around nine or ten, whereas like before you were that age, well you were skiing a lot, but like but things were different. Like you weren't as focused and motivated. Um, like was it was it the pep talks that your dad had, or I don't know if you call them pep talks, but like was what what <laughs> what do you think what do you think happened? 
I really, this is my belief and my dad disagrees with me, but um, I think it's when I met Peekaboo Street when I was nine that really kind of like triggered something. I think I've seen pictures, right? Like you have photos. Yeah. Yeah. In your book, I think actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I, I never really imagined skiing as, as being like a career or as being something that was tangible. It was more so something that I did for fun that I enjoyed doing with my friends and I wanted to be really good at, you know, I wanted to win, but I didn't understand like long-term what that meant, you know? And then when I saw her physically in real life, I'd seen her on TV and I was like, wow, okay, this is what I want to be. And then I said, dad, how do I get there? And, um, and then, you know, we planned it out that I would, I would be 17 of the 2002 Olympics and that would be a time that I could like that I could make it. And so we kind of worked backwards from there and like made a, made a whole plan, like made a, you know, an eight year plan, 10 year plan. And, uh, and that's when I kind of really became a lot more driven and focused. And he thinks that I would have done it anyways. I, I think it's possible that I would have found some, something else to motivate me, but it's, I don't know. I think that's really what did it. And last but not least, under the theme of faster, how to develop quicker, Apollo Ono remembers exactly the training session that he decided to fully commit to his sport, going all in on the project and becoming totally obsessed about it, training as hard as he ever had before until he felt like he deserved a spot on the Olympic team. On that day, it was very clear to me that I was willing to truly commit. I had told my father that I was willing to commit, but I was there, but it was on that training session, Patty, that I remember with great detail the feeling and the look that I had, Mike was to my left, <clears throat> looking at him, him looking at me and just being like, yep. It's real. This is real. And, yeah. and, and we deserve to be here right now, not there. We don't deserve mm-hmm. to be there. We deserve to be here. And because we deserve to be here, we are going to make sure that we maximize uh, every training session by the time we got to the world trials. And I made a promise to myself while watching everybody uh, writing down in my little journal. And I made a promise to myself. And I had said to myself, I am not going to call anyone when I get home. I am going to truly become obsessed about this sport. And I'm going to commit myself to a level that I have never known in prior years. That's so interesting that, that you like, you've mentioned along this, like, it's a fascinating journey and I hope the listeners are enjoying following along at this point. There's been a number of things that have come up though and given that you've been at the top level for so long, you've been around people at that level as well and observed a lot and you've gone in and studied it afterwards as well. The, what stands out to you as the one or two things you like, that's what, for someone to be the best or like, that's one of the most important characteristics of reaching this level and of staying here. Like you've said, you made a choice that, that it was your choice. It wasn't dad making you do it. You, you said you committed, uh, you said you were accepting of the fact that like, yeah, I deserve to like, I'm not going to avoid the pain. You actually moved into the pain. Like there's so much there, mm. such a rich tapestry of like, these are some characteristics that people talk about often. What do you see as the number one or two? Like these are the things that people have to have mentally to be an Olympian. Wow. Uh, th- I think to be an Olympic athlete, there's, there's, there's obviously the physical talents associated. However, I'm just a huge fundamental believer in your mindset and that, that what that is, what that essence can be. There was many athletes throughout my career who 
had weeks or weekends that they were superior to me. Maybe genetically they were superior as well. They just didn't put in the time and the consistency and the effort and the work. And I just believe that's where the real sweet spot is. Now, obviously, there's a genetic component here that can't be dismissed. Like, but I'm assuming that you have some level of genetic ability for this sport. And you, you create this mindset that allows you to truly maximize your performance in every possible way. The way that you look at training, the way that you enjoy the training. Um, I felt something that was quite early on was that most of my teammates hated training. They actually didn't like it. Uh, I just thought that was really weird because I was like, how could you? I started to really enjoy the training. I loved it. You enjoyed the, the pain or the knowing that like I'm doing this is getting me closer to where I want to go? A little bit of everything. Hmm. I, I like the fact that we were about to do a training session that was so hard that half of the team would just quit. I, I liked it. And that to me was like, okay, now we're getting into, now we're peeling back the layers to see that who really wants it. Yeah. Who wants it's it? In, it's interesting. I, I know, I mean, my sporting career was nothing like yours, but I remember as a teenager, particularly, and even once I was in the pros, being. Like it would rain, it would hail sometimes, and that was when I liked going for a run. That was when I liked training because I knew other people weren't doing that, or I knew that yeah. they'd like kind of cut the corner. Yeah. So you're you're saying it's that like ability to do what others want is one of the biggest elements of being great in that level. So I I, I look at all of the great athletes who I've studied. Everyone has this this darkness or this or you call it this pain that they're willing to keep touching, right? Instead of hiding it away huh. and not touching the pain, they're actually willing to touch it and they use it as a lever. And that comes in the form of whether you look at Michael Jordan, whether you look at Michael Phelps, whether, whoever that person is, I believe there's some deep, deep trauma there, micro trauma, whatever it is, that is a, the driving force. And it can be as simple as so insecure, they have to assert dominance over everyone else to have that level playing field of, I feel good enough. It can be as right. simple as that. I've just seen a pattern in every athlete that I've ever known have some semblance of that. Right. And for me, it was, I had a deep fear of failure, uh, partially because of what happened prior to me not making that Olympic team, but then also not making that Olympic team, that pain psychologically at the age of 15 was deeply ingrained in mm. my soul. Mm. And I never wanted to feel that pain ever again because it was almost as if I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And so that began this process. So when I look at an athlete, I want to know what happens when, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't care what they look like when they're fresh and they're peaked. I want to know, show me what you look like on your worst day, under the worst conditions, under the worst environment. And I want to see how they show up. And I, it may, it may not be natural, but over time, I believe you can train that. And some people are naturally, they go towards the fire. Uh -huh. Some people retreat from the fire. And I think with the training, you can equal that playing field to some degree where some people are willing to go towards a fire and stand in the fire for and a long period of time. 
You are listening to Toughness. And if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... Try to lower my breathing and I said, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I just said it over and over and over. And I just skied and I... And now the third theme that we're borrowing from the Olympic motto is stronger. Olympians' secrets to being mentally tough in the moments that matter the most. Starting off with Apollo Ona, who initially was reluctant to work with a sports psychologist or a mental performance coach, but eventually decided to give it a try. And he talks about how that was a turbocharging moment that really shifted his focus and took him to a totally new level, especially under some of the most intense pressure moments that he was going to face as he climbed the top of Mount Olympus. It's really, really, really fascinating insight. Now, you have described an incredible journey of introspection, of failure, of growth. Um, That sounds like it continues on the daily these days. But along the way, was there, it sounds like your dad helped you early on. Were there other people who helped you become more aware and better at that at, at understanding your mindset and getting okay with it and, and turning it into a tool rather than something that just spontaneously combusted sometimes? So when I, <clears throat> to continue that story, Patty, and, and yes, uh, when I was 15, after I'd made that world team, <clears throat> I went back home, I trained very hard. Essentially, I showed up in great shape. Now I was living back in Colorado Springs <clears throat> and uh, we had hired an assistant coach who also was a sports psychologist. He was a studying student sports psychologist. So he was getting his PhD from, or he was studying co- at the Colorado College uh, Sports Psychology. And this guy, he was like, wasn't many years older than I, uh, or sorry, older than the oldest guy on the team. And he had this like deep fascination with Eastern philosophy and meditation and mindfulness. And by the way, back then in 1998, we were like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like, this sounds like, <clears throat> this sounds woo. completely bogus. It's woo-woo and magic stuff. Very right? woo-woo. This guy, David Creswell, comes into our group and essentially says, who here is writing in a daily journal? And we're like, eh, a couple of us sort of hands up. And then he's like, who here practices uh, visualization and meditation? I didn't even know what that was. Literally, I'd heard that word like five times in my life right? Maybe. And, uh, you know, for weeks on end, he was just hammering the team to try to get people to come do these practiced and seated seated meditations and mindfulness exercises with him. Because he believed that it was the, it was the real unlocking of that inner power and potential. Finally, I kind of gave in and said, I'm going to try this. I'm going to see what this guy's all about. And throughout that process, I, it was incredible what happened next. I mean, I, it, it was a combination of me being in great shape, me being you know, assertive and intentional, and also actually actively training my mind, yeah. which my mind was very busy, very ADHD, had a hard time concentrating on one single task at a time. I was all over the place. I was like a fly just buzzing around the room. And he was able to help me calm down, calm that mind and focus inward in a way that created a pattern so that I could literally lower my heart rate when I was in the heat box before a race, which would then give me more capacity to grow because I wasn't being affected by the nerves and the fear. 
I was being extremely present. That was my first entrance into the world of sports psych, meditation, mindfulness, all of those things. And I, it's not like I ever became a master of it, but just the simple training and that progress over perfection mindset was, was, was fascinating. And then I had another sports psychologist later on in my career, two years later, his name was Doug Jowdy. And this was the guy who, who actually created real training programs for me mentally. Right. And at the what, time, what did that look like as it, for the listeners so who, who aren't yeah. <clears throat> familiar with it? So this was so cool. So essentially, I walked into Doug's office and I told him, I want to be a machine 100 plus percent of the time. I want to be a machine every single day. I want to be able to manage pain. I want my legs to be like pistons. I want to be un indestructible. That's what I, w- I told him. And he's kind of like, oh, right. I, I, have a, I, got, I got a good one here. This is good. I like it. Um, and he also tells a story that I actually, when I came into his office, I sat in his seat. I sat in his, his chair. And he was, like, the, he was like, he was like, that's my seat. I was like, no, 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 I'm going to sit here. You're and, the boss. Uh, I'm the boss. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually, I just talked to him yesterday about this and he was retelling that story. It was really funny. So anyway, so uh, one of the things that he did was at the time, this is the year 2000, 1999, in 2000, uh, he had a biofeedback device, which essentially was reading all the electrical patterns and waves and energy that is coming in your mind. And it was displaying this on a computer screen. It was re- this back then, this was really cool. Like 20 years ago, this was like mind boggling. And it was like this, this head device that had all these, these sensors that went all around my forehead and all over my whole head. And I remember looking at the computer screen and he's saying, you know, it's this little line. It looks almost like a heartbeat. Right. right, like when you look at one of those one of those screens in the hospital, and instead this was this was reading like the electrical patterns um, uh, that was happening in, in in my mind. When I would blink, it would kind of go crazy. So you know, you wanted to kind of maintain this very calm and cool and collective focus. And when I first started, it was just this buzzy, just like that fly, just up and down, up and down, up and down, rapid motion. And I didn't really know what I was, he, what I was trying to do. And he says, "Well, you want to make the line go almost flat line." like you want to have no vibrational activity, that's when you know you're truly in the flow state. And I was just like, man, I cannot do this at all. And then so he puts it on and he demonstrates for me. Within 20 seconds, this thing is going like this. It goes and just stays static. And I was like, oh my God, this guy, this guy's like a, he's like a monk, right? This guy's amazing. Because <laughs> I, I, I literally, I couldn't do it for like a week straight. I, nothing, there was no change. And then eventually I started to break that habit. And he also gave me a portable device. I forgot the name of this device, but essentially you, you put your, it looked like a mouse. You put your two fingers on it and it had uh, a cord that ran into your ear. So an earpiece. And it started with this sound. The sound was, um, it, depending on the vibration and the electrical excitement, I believe that came through your fingers and your heartbeat, the sound was very high pitched, almost like a e. And for the first three weeks, I thought the sound just went ee, like it, that, that's so the, the more focused and relaxed you became, lower, the lower the, the wave and the tone would be. Mm-hmm. And then a month and a half in, I thought it would just went up and down, just like, ee, and you know, the lower it went, the more focused I was. When I started to really practice this thing by the tutelage of, of this sports psychologist, it actually dropped so low it becomes like a metronome, like a tick, tick, tick. And that was 
like you know it's like it was like a video game to me at that point it was i was gamification at the highest level because then mm-hmm. i was really addicted because that's what i wanted every single time i put it on and so i used to i became obsessed man i mean i he talked about visualization what does it feel like when you close your eyes and you look down can you see your laces in your skates do when you rerun a race of 1500 meters and you close your eyes do you start to sweat can you elevate your heart rate and can you lower your heart rate and that visualization was so powerful to me i feel that that all of those mindset techniques and trainings and tactics and tools that was the difference for me and in that year 1999 and 2000 i won almost every single race there was to win i was so dominant and it was it was incredible it was like a light switch man it was like just the feeling of being in the zone I always describe to people as when you watch the original Matrix movies and Neo finds out that he's the one, he can now read the Matrix code and you know Agent Smith is firing the bullets at him and he just starts dodging the bullets in slow motion. That's what it feels like when you're in the zone. To me, it was like the speed and time slows down. My brain is processing the information so quickly, it becomes instinctual, pass here go on the outside, you know, draft here. And it also becomes very automatic and, and easy. And yeah, simple. you're not like thinking, right? You're just present and you're, you're doing what you do. It's, it's a beautiful, it's the most addictive thing, I think, on the planet. And what I didn't realize then was that to get to that stage was years and years and years of work. Right. I'm being able to flip it on and off. Like lights yeah. Next up, we have Alexi's definition of mental toughness, which is a little different than you might expect. I think toughness is the ability to hang in there during a period of time that you've committed to a goal, as long as there's no bad pain going on or or injury, like it's being able to kind of be in an incubator for a period of time that you've committed to. So whether you're like, look, I'm running this race and if I'm not injured, I'm going to keep putting my foot in front of the other, or I have this goal. And I'm going to be on my own team and commit for this period of time. I think toughness is like committing to a process and also, you know, all the while having the bird's eye view of being able to pull yourself out if some red flag comes up. But barring Mm -hmm. if there's no red flags, toughness is your ability to be in there when you need to be in there. And I think toughness requires composure. So it's not like this like out of control toughness. Toughness isn't like a feral animal. I think toughness is composure. Here we have Veronica Campbell-Brown talking about despite having already won gold medals, there was still pressure. And in fact, that pressure only goes up and could eat you alive if you don't have the right mindset. One of my other guests was a comedian and not was, still is a comedian on The Daily Show. He, he basically does public speaking, but he has to make people laugh at the same time. And that's the number one fear for the human race. So it's a different kind of toughness, but he has to get up there every night and make people laugh. And he described the conversation he had with his wife where, she, where he was getting trolled online or whatever. And, and she said to him, you know, just screw the haters, ignore the haters. And he was like, that's a fucking Instagram post. Like, how do you do that? You can say it all you want, but the process of doing that is, is something that like you have to actually learn to do that. And so you said, you know, something there about embracing it. And some people might say embrace the suck or, you know, there's good Instagram posts about that. 
But what was your process? Maybe if we fast forward a little to, okay, you've made the Olympics or you've won medal and you go on to win, as I said, started show a bunch of them. What was something that you had to evolve your thinking around in terms of embracing something that wasn't comfortable in order to not just make it? Because once you made it, you then stayed there for a long time as well. And that we have a lot of listeners who, whether they're in the military and they've made the ranks and they want to move up or whether they're an athlete or a business person, whatever they're trying to do, they might, have, they might have already made it to what their initial goal was. They've gone through that high school moment. For you, once you were at the top of the tree, what did you need to accept to stay there? I had to work harder because it. once you get to the top, the pressure keep building for you to stay there. And so you have to keep evolving. You have to, it's almost like you have to get stronger. You have to become more determined. It seems that the more I achieve, the more I am forced to become more determined to not become complacent because after winning my first Olympic medals, I was senior. I was a senior in college. And that year I won the indoors 200 meters at the SEC. And I, right after that, I forfeited the rest of my collegiate eligibility and I went pro and the pressure continues because the next year in 2005, I lost the world championship. And so I had to dig deep and figure out what was the problem because I was expected to win and then I lost. And so I realized that I cannot become complacent. After each win, I have to celebrate quickly and get back to work. There is no time for, and that's why I am very humble because I am not a type of person who really push my accomplishment in people's face. If you don't know what I accomplished, you won't know because I don't really say it. Because I realize that it doesn't matter how much you accomplish you always have to keep going. People are expecting more. People are looking for more. And it's almost like people are looking up to you to win when you go on the track. And so for me, I have to become, the more I win, the more determined and the more I have to work hard to maintain that level of high performance and to make sure that I am not becoming over my head or think that I've made it or think that I've achieved everything. But it's about staying determined and, and keep working hard. Yeah. To, yeah. Was there a process for you with that where, like you say, okay, I, I had to, I, I won a gold medal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not many of us can say we've won an Olympic gold medal. And yet you you talk about it like, okay, you know, next minute I'm on to the next thing or next week. Like what was the process for you to be like, okay, I accept that I've, I've achieved this goal or I've done this thing that's pretty damn hard to do. Did that just naturally happen for you over a course of days or did you sit down and journal? Did you have a little getaway? Like what was it for you to help you move through that? I think it's a natural, I think it was a natural thing for me because I have my goals. So at the beginning of each year, I, or each season rather, I set my goals and I keep moving towards them. And as soon as I accomplish a goal, I, I set another one. And so it's like I always have this, this list of things that I that I have that I want to achieve. And so I guess that keep me motivated, that keep me going. Okay. Are the lists like stuck up on your wall, like beautiful <laughs> mind style, or it's just a mental list? It's both. I have it mentally and I have it in my journal. And I still have a few things on my list that I haven't ticked off as yet. And I feel like the clock is ticking, but I'm still determined. Actually, I'm training for Tokyo 2021 Olympics. A lot of hey. people, yeah, a lot of people are surprised and like, why? Why are you doing it? I feel like it would be a great thing for my daughter to um, have some photos to look back on because she's too young to understand that her mom 
went to the Olympics after having her, that would be a good thing. Mm. And it also would be great to motivate a lot of people my age who feel like at a certain point, you do not have it anymore. Because I do believe that speed don't go anywhere. Anyways, you always have speed. As long as you can recover, then you're good to go. And I, I feel great in training. I'm hitting some very good times. And my only challenge, which is the recovery to stay healthy, because over the last few years, there's some injury that just jump off without like where these come from. So it's about loving what I do. I think is a passion. I think it's just a passion for a track and field that, that keep me going. And I'm not really... It's just icing on the cake. I feel like I've achieved a lot, but I just feel like if I can achieve more, then that will motivate a lot of people and that would help uplift a lot of people. And so it's icing on the cake for me and it's fun and I enjoy it. Although the training can be challenging and that may be the hardest part about sport. You have to train so many months and a race is just a couple of seconds and you have to make sure that you do everything right. You do not have any time to waste and because you could throw away one year of training just in a couple of seconds if your focus is off a little or if you did not get enough rest the night before or if you're distracted. And so I just enjoy doing it. And I would really like to go to the Olympic one more time just to not only for me, but just to inspire and motivate a lot of people that no matter where you are in life, if there is something that you haven't checked off yet, you can still go for it and just do not limit yourself. Just give it your best shot. Have fun with it. And and that will help you to do well and accomplish whatever you accomplish. It will, it will work it because you, you enjoy doing it and you have fun doing it. And finally, we have Lindsay Vaughn bringing it home, talking about how a three-time Olympic medalist behave in her most pressure-packed moment. Obviously, there's a benefit. Firstly, we'll, we'll go to that second bit in a second. But firstly, in being present in big moments, you know, 80... 82 or 83 depending on what source you read gold medals in the world cup and also an olympic and a world championship like they are big moments to get ready for that run there's a big moment and there's what what sometimes i'll refer to as a sweaty palms moment where it's like okay we're here i'm at the top of the run there's no stopping this like it's i can't go back it's it's worse to go back than it is to go forward and i also know that there's huge stakes on the line and being present is very important in that moment. And I can see you nodding. Was that something that was natural to you or did you have to develop that? Was there a coach who developed that? Was there a practice you found that was like, okay, this helps me handle that really big shit? I kind of figured it out on my own. Like I was in a lot of high, high stakes situation, like really high pressure situations as early as like 12 years old, 13 years old. And, um, I would always get really, really nervous. And it was really my last, so I think I was 13 or 14. It was my last year that I was um, able to compete at this, like the biggest international race for juniors. And my dad always said that, you know, if, if I won, I would most likely go on to be a World Cup champion because probably 75% of the people that won that race did go on to win world cups which is like it's a crazy stat um but i and knew you were, how old? You were 14 I, at this point yeah and i'm like if i you know if i want to win i have like i have to win this and so i'm standing there in the, in the start of the second in the second round i'm in second place i was just freaking out like i was totally freaking out so nervous and i just i don't know i just kept saying 
uh, I got on the start and said, I started breathing, like try to lower my breathing. And I said, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I just said it over and over and over. And I just skied and I, I won. Um, but that was kind of, I think a big moment for me and kind of realizing that about that self-talk, you know, just telling myself that I can. Um, and then I also had some other tricks that I figured out throughout my career. I used to write little notes on my skis. So when I was in the starting gate, I would look down and I would see, you know, um, stay forward or be aggressive. And that would kind of focus my mind on the, the things that I needed to do in that moment. And then I also, then when I got to the Olympics, realized that that's something totally different entirely. And um, I figured out that it, you really have to throw everything out the window and you have to find a way to be the best that you've ever been in your entire life in that one moment. And you have to be in that moment right in the starting gate. So it's like very much a timing thing. You know, how do you time the rhythm of your warm up? How do you you know, mentally get yourself psyched up so that you're, because if you get psyched up too early, then you're actually tired when you're in the starting gate because the adrenaline sucks so much energy out of you that you can be depleted entirely by the time you get to the starting gate. So like there's a, a very, it, it, it took me quite a few years to actually, you know, figure out, which is why I didn't win until um, the 2010 Olympics. Um, but I, I had a, a very methodical way of, you know, how I prepared and, and physically and mentally got myself in the state of being entirely present and like, you know, in the zone for those 10 seconds when I'm in the starting gate. I don't know about you, but I found myself inspired almost daily watching these incredible performers do their thing, stretch beyond their limits. And in some cases, help other people do that too. I was super busy working with a couple of the teams in Tokyo, but when I came up for air and spoke with the production team, we had this idea. So what is it got to be so damn